Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. The parables of Jesus are made-up stories. Now, this is not controversial unless you grew up in a particular form of fundamentalism, but give me a moment. Jesus literally just makes these stories up. Parables, as I have remarked before, are avant-garde art house short films, maybe eventually picked up by A24. They are meant to provoke us. They are meant to evoke something in us, and they're meant to invite an interpretation or interpretations with their unusual and their highly symbolic content rather than these mass entertainment, Hollywood productions, or documentaries that attempt to either entertain us or educate us. Parables are offered to us in this format, art. I think so that it will stick with us and not easily go, "Uh uh-huh, yep, got it, next. It gets lodged in us. And just like when an interviewer sits a director down and finally forces her to uncomfortably explain her film, that 30-second explanation is never really a replacement for the actual film itself and the work it's doing in you. The film is told in a way that is supposed to open you up and make you wonder. I mean, when was the last time that you read something in the Bible and it led you to wonder? If you try to get cute with the parables and press them into a very literal one-to-one analog with something else, I think you're ruining it. And frankly, you're not letting it work its charms on you the way that it wants to. So instead, when we get into parables, we have to enter into the world of storytelling, analogy-making 
engaging with things like simile and metaphor and painting with our words. These are all forms of communication that, I will admit, demand more from us as listeners. Some forms of communication are designed to require very little from us. We just kind of sit there and go, uh-huh, yeah, yes, next. Parables are not that. If you're going to go with the storytelling of a parable, though, you are making some risks. You are opening yourself up to multiple interpretations from different listeners. Now, I know for some of us, that seems like very risky behavior on Jesus's part to just say once upon a time and leave it to us to figure out what to do with it. But God's ways are higher than our ways. And the more that I know Jesus, the more I find that this approach is more compelling to me. So today's parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven or the God's dream for the world, God's way of making sense in the world is like a horror wedding banquet? Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> okay, so there's at least two ways of making sense of this parable. Here's the first. A king, God, wants to throw a wedding party for his son, Jesus. And so he sends his messengers, these are the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, to those who were called to the party, that is God's chosen people, the Jews. But in this telling of the story, they didn't want to come. So God didn't just, you know, get, ex God got very upset that they declined the invitation. And it kind of went further than that. In this telling of the story, they even wanted to kill God's messengers. Now, hopefully by now, if you have been in class with me, a few alarm bells should be ringing off going, this doesn't seem right. That seems a little bizarre. In this telling of the story, the king, God, gets very angry. And God sends soldiers to destroy these people and set their city on fire. Again, hopefully there's some alarm bells ringing off for you, church. God then says, well, you know, they weren't really worthy to be invited anyway. And so let's go find some other people. Let's get all the Gentile Christians in. Yes, that's a good idea. Go get all the Gentiles and we'll make them Christians. And then we'll just give the party over to them. Thus, the wedding party fills up with people that look like me. And you'd think if we were telling the story, the story would end there. But as you know, because Sarah just read it for you in public, that's not where the story ends. The story has an even more bizarre ending. In this telling of the story, the character God lays eyes on a man in the party not wearing proper wedding attire. Who let you in here without a cummerbund? Who let you in here with shoes like that? The man is speechless. And so God calls on the hitmen, and they come in. They tie his hands, they tie his feet, and they throw him out into the farthest darkness. And people there are weeping. And they're gnashing their teeth. Therefore, the moral of the parable in this telling of the story is, don't be like that guy. You come to church proper now. <laughs> Dress up now. You don't want to show up to God's party improperly dressed, which basically in this telling of the story means compliant. Otherwise, God will throw you out and give up on the invitation 
just like God did to Israel. That's the first way of telling this parable, and you can probably already tell, unless you're like one of your first Sundays and you don't really know me. That's not how I want to tell this story. Here's the second way of telling Jesus' story. This way of telling the story starts by applying Christological pressure. Now, that's an idea that I learned from my teacher, Douglas Campbell at Duke, who consequently happens to be with us this weekend with his spouse, Rachel, herself an amazing visual artist. Christological pressure is a simple theological procedure that works like this. Anytime somebody gives you a theological idea and they lay it in front of you, your task as a Christian is to judge the validity of that idea in light of who Jesus Christ is. Someone says, well, I think God is like this. And you say, okay, tell me why you think that in light of who Jesus Christ is. And let's begin our theological logic with Jesus Christ. For example, Christological pressure says, if a story tells you that God is really angry and hates you, you instantly apply Christological pressure and say, well, okay, but I know Jesus Christ. So can you tell me what it is from who Jesus Christ is that would lead you to believe that God hates me? Can you make that math work for me? Or if, it tells you, if a story tells you that God is really a capricious God, you apply Christological pressure and you say, okay, but in light of who Jesus Christ is, are there any good reasons to believe that God is actually fickle? Like what, what, what about Jesus leads you to believe any of this? Got it? That's exerting Christological pressure. Now, Christological pressure says that the clearest picture, the clearest revelation of who God is, is Jesus Christ. And if you're going to ask me to take on an idea about who God is, and it doesn't make sense as a Christian with the identity of Jesus Christ, I, as a Christian, am just going to have very serious doubts. And if you've got that, you're now ready to hear this story a second way. In light of Jesus Christ is, what possible reason do we have to think that the king in this story is God? A maniacal tyrant, so obsessed with ego and image and presenting a strong and dignified front that he is willing to kill his own people who do not want to be in the same room with him. I don't know much in life, but I do know Jesus Christ. That character does not sound like Jesus Christ. That, does, that character does not sound like God. Instead, that character actually sounds a whole lot like, well, how we always do power. This is how the world always does it. Egotistical, self-important, diabolical, morally repugnant, deviants with a crown, always seem ready to kick out and destroy those who they have decided are unworthy to be in the presence of such a charade of a leader like them. That sounds a whole lot like the ways of the world, not God. Furthermore, in light of who Jesus Christ is, do we really want to take on such an anti-Semitic reading like the first one? Come on. This is exactly the kind of harmful theological program that has been used to fuel real harm against God's chosen people. Jesus Christ is Jewish. God made a covenant with the Jews. 
God suddenly goes back on this covenant, that creates a whole lot of problems that I'm not really sure you want to deal with. So what gives with this story? To get right to the point, the words of Selena Meyer, buddy, why don't you put your running shoes on and get to the point. If there is anyone in this story who looks like Jesus Christ, who is it? I can think of maybe one. The one lone man who does not fit that horrific party. The one man who does not fit the party thrown by the tyrant ruler who filled the masquerade by murdering other people. One person looks like they do not belong in this twisted scene. The evil king in this story spots this one and demands to know, how did you get in here looking the way you look? The text actually says that the man was speechless, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, silent before his shearers. The emperor's thugs tie his hands and tie his feet. It's a clear allusion to the execution that is awaiting Jesus at the hands of the empire on the cross when his hands and his feet were tied. And the powers that be ultimately at Jesus' death exile him outside the city walls to the farthest darkness, to the pit of death, with much weeping and gnashing of teeth. The final line in the story says, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. Karl Barth says, yeah, like really few. Like one, this one, Jesus Christ. He is the chosen one to be the lone alternative to the world's ways of violence towards others. Everyone is invited into this terrible reality where amateur leaders resort to coercion and violence to make it appear that their kingdoms are without end. Everyone is invited into the reality by the powers that be, but Jesus Christ was elected and rejected because charlatans who parade in power have known from Herod when Jesus was just a little baby that this one would never play our games and this one was always going to get thrown out. Jesus' parable says that's what God's kingdom is like. Totally unlike every other kingdom you've ever heard of. Jesus Christ appears to go against the grain of the universe. But actually, the longer that you hang out with Jesus Christ, we discover that he is showing us the way the grain of the universe actually runs. And we realize we've been living against the grain for so long, we assumed it was the other way around. Jesus Christ's way of leading through service, sacrifice, and love are fundamentally different than what we always eventually resort to, which is dominance and violence and oppression and telling people, sorry, there's no room for you in this end. This is a parable about how power works in the world and why Jesus Christ's approach to power is different. Now that you've located Jesus Christ in the story, did you find us? 
You know, sometimes the powers of the world get so desperate that they will go out and invite irrelevant people to their party. The church. And irrelevant people like the church get all excited when we get invited to important rooms because we get to play dress up for a minute. We live in a land with a long history of power players who sometimes decide to use the church because sometimes in their calculus, they have determined that the church is good for their business. Reality is too many Christians like me enjoy it when powerful, powerful people notice us and we let them use the church because the reality is power is catnip for Christians. And American Christians too frequently treat our stories our symbols, and our churches like Airbnbs that we rent out to any power or principality who needs a prop. You know, it's happened for so long, I don't even necessarily blame the powers for thinking that they could come use our stuff again. We've been renting it out for hundreds of years. What possible reason would they have to now suddenly think that the Christians would have a problem with it? Jesus walks into the party that we weren't really invited to at first, and he sticks out like a sore thumb. And all I want to know is, I wonder what it would take for us to finally stick out like a sore thumb too. Are we really willing to seem useless to the world's way of doing business? Or will we be content to design ministries to simply make people better members of certain political parties? Don't misunderstand me. Will be times simply by putting Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, that it will appear that we are being helpful to the world. And that is good. The church just, however, does not exist merely to be yet another tool that the powers of the world can call upon when they need their agenda pushed. The church does not exist so that the world can get what it wants done violently. And I think the reality is that we have to repent of is that we've been too desperate at times to be relevant. That we've been willing to traffic in the same violence and cruelty as you get anywhere else in the world. And you can't really blame people when they say, well, I'm kind of sorry. I don't really see the difference between church and world at this point. So I think I'll just be without you. I think on the whole, we've earned that reputation and we've got to figure out how to be serious about repenting of. We've gotten too desperate to be taken seriously by the world that we have forgotten that God has already given us our work to do. We're supposed to put Jesus at the center of our communities by gathering with other people, anybody that Jesus gives us. We're supposed to be listening for all of the ways that God speaks to us. We're supposed to be responding to God and not resisting God. We're supposed to transform every table we sit at into an extension of this Eucharistic feast. We're supposed to act as if God has actually sent us out to love other people, not judge them or condemn them. That is a way of being in the world that bears witness to who God is. And at its heart, it's not an attempt to get closer to political power by any means necessary. This Jesus-centered life of gathering and listening and responding and feasting and being sent, that's the shape of this Sunday service. Why do you think we do what we do every week? We do them every week so that they become ongoing ways of life that we practice. And when we do, we can actually have a, a quiet confidence 
It's the kind of quiet confidence that says, I don't need to pretend to play dress up with the powers of the world. I've been sent by God to love the world. And if we do that, holy family, one day we will be privileged enough that someone might turn towards us, look at who we are, and say, who are you? And how did you get in here looking like that? You can find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.